Welcome to today's case file, Hidden in Plain Sight, the fight against human trafficking. Welcome to Body of Crime, your go-to true crime podcast, where we plunge headfirst into the gripping world of criminal mysteries. Join your hosts, Jose Medina, Crystal Garcia, and Alicia Anaya, as we deliver the full stories, immersing you in the heart of each case. With spine-chilling cases, in-depth analysis, captivating interviews, and a comprehensive examination of the evidence, embark on a thrilling journey with us as we explore bone-chilling cases from around the globe. Whether you're a seasoned true crime enthusiast or a fresh face in the genre, we guarantee to keep you on the edge of your seat. So put on your detective hat, grab your notepad, and get ready to dive into the thrilling world of body of crime. Today we're diving into a gripping story that goes beyond the realm of traditional criminal activities. You might have already caught wind of the film Sound of Freedom, a powerful narrative that unravels the relentless fight against human trafficking. The film brings to light the journey of Tim Ballard, a former U.S. Homeland Security Special Agent who, fueled by a burning desire to make a difference, established Operation Underground Railroad. Through this nonprofit organization, Tim and his team are on a mission to take down the harrowing underworld of human trafficking. Their goal? To rescue victims ensnared in this heart-wrenching web and ensure that the perpetrators face justice. To date, they have rescued more than 6,000 and made more than 5,000 arrests. Operation Underground Railroad, often referred to as R, is on the front lines of the battle orchestrating covert operations to save those caught in the clutches of human trafficking. Their primary focus is on rescuing the most vulnerable of victims, children, who are tragically susceptible to exploitation. By collaborating with law enforcement agencies across the borders, R aims to dismantle trafficking rings and liberate those who have been cruelly enslaved. This is no small feat. Their work involves a blend of intricate investigations, shrewd intelligence gathering, and meticulously coordinated operations. But this isn't just about crime. It's about confronting staggering global issues. Human trafficking isn't just a statistic. It's a heart-wrenching reality that affects millions of lives and fattens the wallets of criminal organizations to the tune of $150 billion annually. The concept of humans being reduced to commodities subject to forced labor and sexual exploitation is a chilling and deeply intricate problem with 25 million trafficking victims around the world today. In the shadows of this darkness, it's crucial to spotlight the tireless efforts of organizations like Operation Underground Railroad and individuals like Tim Ballard. They are unsung heroes combating the scourge of human trafficking day in and day out. Their dedication not only brings hope to survivors, but also casts a piercing light on the urgency of this issue. So join us as we delve into this true crime narrative that transcends the conventional reminding us that the fight for justice comes in many forms.
Human trafficking, also referred to as trafficking in persons or modern-day slavery, constitutes a grave offense involving the exploitation of individuals for compelled labor or sex. The diversity among trafficking victims defies any single categorization, transcending lines of race, color, nationality, religion, disability, age, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, socioeconomic status, education level, or citizenship. This reprehensible crime extends its reach to anyone below 18 engaged in commercial sex, even if seemingly consensual, employing means such as force, deceit, or coercion. While the characteristics of human trafficking victims are diverse, perpetrators commonly target those who are vulnerable due to poverty, unsafe living conditions, or aspirations for a better life. In the United States, notable at-risk groups encompass American Indian, Alaska Native communities, LGBTQ individuals, people with disabilities, undocumented immigrants, runaway and homeless youth, and low-income individuals. These victims are ensnared through deceitful promises compelled to work under inhumane conditions for little or no compensation. The spectrum of human trafficking perpetrators is equally varied. They can be foreign or U.S. citizens, acquaintances, family members, or even strangers. Dispelling the misconception that traffickers are solely male, cases reveal women can also be involved in this crime. Pimps, gang members, diplomats, business proprietors, labor intermediaries, and owners of farms, factories, and companies can all be perpetrators. Victims are found across legal and illegal labor sectors, encompassing domains like, like child and elder care, the drug trade, massage parlors, hair salons, restaurants, hotels, factories, and farms. Some remain hidden within homes, trapped in domestic servitude, while others endure extreme circumstances in plain view, forced into exotic dance clubs, construction, health and beauty services, or eateries persisting as a dire reality throughout the United States. Today, we are joined by Stefano Aguilera, a distinguished expert in counter-trafficking from TXCTI. Texas Counter-Trafficking Initiative performs investigations to assist families and law enforcement agencies in the location and recovery of juvenile victims and commercial sexual exploitation. Their mission is to counter the exploitation and subjugation of a vulnerable population and combat sex trafficking. Welcome, Stefano. Thank you, Crystal. We want to start off um, where we always start off, and we just kind of want to learn a little bit about you. So can you kind of give us an overview of your background? Sure. I grew up kind of really interested in kind of anything and everything techie, 14, 15, and looking into what Anonymous was and Dark Web and what is it and all that fun stuff. I wouldn't say I was a hacker by any means, a, <laughs> kind of a, a wannabe script kitty at, at best. <laughs> but it was always kind of just a, a passion. I never really wanted to make it a job. I ended up going to school for engineering with a minor in physics. Uh, that was kind of my main focus. My goal was to be a, a mechanical engineer, kind of following what my, my father did as well. But I ended up dropping out of college due to financial and family reasons. I ended up pursuing a career in sales originally with a company that specializes in restoration, kind of like ServPro, but more on the corporate side. And a lot of my job there revolved around open source intelligence. And one of the guys that ran that entire division was a major in the anti-terrorism task force over in Afghanistan. 
under General McChrystal. And so his guidance and tutelage on the investigation side of things and kind of how to look people up and and the the entire process of intelligence kind of opened up a new world to me that I realized I was, one, good at, and two, I really enjoyed. So I went from there, and then my job currently is with an international detective agency. I work as a global intelligence analyst. Uh, That is my day job. And on the free time, I run my own business that's more related to software development, kind of in the in the financial field, stocks and such. But all of my volunteer time is spent doing Texas CTI, and I lead any and all technological efforts on the team. That's awesome. That's really cool. What kind of motivated you to pursue working with TXCTI and combating human trafficking? What kind of drew you into that? Oh, so that's, that's a, a kind of a long, fun story. Um, <laughs> I guess it began kind of when I was in college. Uh, we had a visit from the International Justice Ministry, IJM. They had kind of a presentation on trafficking in Indonesia and India, child trafficking, sexual exploitation, labor trafficking. All that was very interesting to me. And there, there's only been a few times in my life where I felt in my gut that this is something I need to do. Uh, and every mm-hmm. single time I've been right about that. One of those was when I met my now wife, I said, that's, that's the woman. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I've only felt that feeling a couple times in my life and I followed it. And it was always kind of in the back of my head that this is a fight that I need to be in. And so once I came back from college, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, introduced me to a nonprofit here in the Houston area whose entire focus was on prevention, knowledge, and that sort of thing. That's what they share. And I joined them. They did did outreach. It was a religious group. And so at the time, I saw that that was the best fit. They had a lot of volunteer positioning. So I joined in with them. And then I had a couple of situations where there was someone who made an outcry. And she needed assistance on getting out. And so when I approached the team leaders about that whole situation, they didn't really have didn't know what to do and that was my first experience with sort of the, the challenges and the bureaucracy and kind of the red tape surrounding all of this and I felt there was a need that needed to be filled and so I didn't find any other group that was out there until I met an individual on that team who then kind of guided me and, and gave me guidance and allowed me to work under her private investigative license to learn uh, investigations and, and kind of the physical side of anti-traffic uh, did that for a few years, and that's when I, where I met JB. JB and I have now been working together about seven years, and he decided to start his own venture here at Texas CTI, and I, I joined him in it, and that's where we're at. That's really cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Have there been any cases that kind of hold a like particularly significant, like personal significance for you? To be honest, most of them, if not all of them. My, uh, my mind's a bit of an iron trap, for better or for worse. It's a great benefit with a lot of the analysis work that I do, but some things stick a little longer than I, I personally like them to. A few of them that I can talk about without going into too many details just to protect the survivors. Uh, there's this one case that I worked that involved a four-year-old. The, the mother was involved in a lot of drug usage and such and mental health issues. And it, Overall, it was just a really sad situation because from the outline looking in, it was a normal family. You would see them on church on Sundays. You would see them in the streets, you would see them shopping for groceries and whatnot. It, it wasn't really visible from the outside looking in, but the mom had a lot more internal t- turmoil going on, and it resulted in her wanting to sell her four-year-old online. There was a buyer, unfortunately, and that kind of situation evolved, and we were in charge of investigating that whole thing. So 
that that case always kind of sticks with me. And another one was my my very first one. This was when I was with that group, and I had mentioned to them. I think my phrasing was was exactly uh, quote. I have a particular set of sketchy skills. <laughs> uh, as I mentioned, you know, I was, I was a bit of a cringe lord back then. I yeah. you know, was a wannabe for a lot of things and didn't really know what I was jumping into. But I, I'm glad that I did say that because they believed me for whatever reason and <laughs> allowed me to kind of join in on something that they had going on. Uh, there was a 15-year-old from Honduras that was being trafficked and we had reason to believe via social media and such that there was a lot of evidence towards that. So along with the team, I kind of gathered the evidence through social media, put together using the tools and skill sets that I, that I had from my previous work, threw that together, and then forwarded to an FBI tip line. Uh, they did eventually get back to me and basically just said thank you. <laughs> and yeah. left at that, I never was able to see what happened with that case. I looked it up years later, and every now and then I'll check, and it's, I still don't see very much of it. So yeah. hopefully that situation was resolved as best possible, but I do think about that one a lot. And another one I think about a lot, and this will be the last one because I could go on for days on this. But, uh, <laughs> no, you're we had, good. <laughs> we had one that involved a, a government official. Uh, um, and I won't go into where, who, what, or when for, for obvious reasons, but that one I think was the most frustrating and heartbreaking just because it was an uh, official that was kind of expected to be in a position of power such that they were helping the abused and instead became the abuser really sad situation just overall i think about that one a lot but someone that i occasionally keep tabs on i keep all the files and will occasionally search up the, the girls just to make sure they're doing all right and there have been a few unfortunately where i do make that google search and they are found dead or whatnot and it's a little difficult but i i, I do keep track of them it's definitely an honorable venture that you're on you talked a little bit about the bureaucracy and the red tape that's associated with really law enforcement and, and even if the FBI, a lot of times they're constrained based off laws. What flexibility do you have not being law enforcement to be able to help these cases? Yeah, well, end of the day, I mean, I'm just a civilian. Even if you have a PI license, you're technically just a civilian. It doesn't give you the ability to make arrests short of a citizen's arrest, which requires an active felony taking place. And I think there's a bit more legality to that. but. Right. I'm just a civilian end of the day, so I can go into places and investigate things that a law enforcement officer in uniform can't necessarily do the same. So an example of that would be if we have someone, let's say, at a strip club that we think is being trafficked. A uniformed officer can't walk inside the strip club and be like, hey, are you are you being trafficked? But we can walk in, we can play the part, we can use a little bit of social engineering, make friends with the manager, talk to the girls, that sort of thing, kind of fit in and gather information that way. And that's not really something that law enforcement can do. Uh, right. We also can just look in the people for no good reason. It's not necessarily illegal to use open source intelligence to find things out on people, track through social media. You can make burner accounts. You can even use real accounts to follow the girls, follow the traffickers, keep an eye on them, especially if they post publicly. Right. Um, you know, Law enforcement a lot of times doesn't have the resources, the time, the assets necessary to, to dedicate tracking down someone to, to that extent, especially if they, there's no proof of anything happening. A lot of times for law enforcement to get involved, there's that sort of requirement of, well, we know this person has immediate harm or threats have been made. There's proof of that. But we're able to step in where the family tells us, hey, we think this person's being trafficked or, hey, we think they're missing with this person. We think they're over here. Uh, we kind of work in that gray. We think 
area versus the we know area that's required for the law enforcement to take action. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And in terms of not being law enforcement, I'm thinking through this. Do you find that people are more receptive to give you information, share with you? Because I know a lot of times there's a lot of apprehension with being a snitch or or telling on somebody or or even being seen speaking to the police. Um, Do you find your your not being tied to law enforcement gives you a little bit more access to to people and to information? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think a lot of what we, our mission is also kind of gives us that, that ability. So one of the things about us, particularly at Texas CTI, we're not, our mission is not anti-porn. It's not anti-pornography. It's not anti-prostitution. I think those, those are all valid arguments that can be made. And those are, those are definitely part of the discussion around trafficking mm-hmm. uh, in general. But for our mission specifically, we focus very specifically on one thing and we try and do that very well. Right. Um, and we think that if, if there's a lot of groups that do the other aspects of it very well, then we can all work together to get the entire process from beginning to end done very well. And because of that, we're allowed to go kind of in the areas where we can have these conversations with the girls and they know that we're not going to mm-hmm. try and convince them to stop what they're doing or try and give them some religious speech or try and pull them out forcefully. We're there and we go, hey, we have a 14-year-old in the street. Have you seen her? You know? Right. And do you need help? No, you're good. All right, cool. Let me know if you need a Red Bull or something. You know, we got you. We kind of make that relationship with yeah. the girls on the street so that they know who we are. They know what we do. And at the end of the day, we're not out to harm them. We're, we have one very specific goal, and that is to recover people who are being forcibly trafficked. Right, uh, and right. those who are missing in, in, in the life against their will, right. and especially minors. There's, there's a lot of women that we speak to that say, hey, she's too young for this. You know, pull right. her out. And they'll just willingly give us the information and you know that that takes years of kind of establishing that rapport with them but yeah we, we definitely have a bit more leeway not being law enforcement recognizing human trafficking is paramount in our collective efforts to combat this heinous crime It involves remaining vigilant for signs that might otherwise go unnoticed, such as individuals exhibiting signs of physical or emotional distress, appearing fearful or controlled, lacking personal identification, or engaging in activities that seem incongruent with their age or circumstances. By cultivating an awareness of these red flags and understanding the diverse tactics traffickers employ, we can play an active role in identifying potential victims and intervening to offer them the assistance they urgently need. made one comment earlier about it's not what you what do you think it looks like and i think that's very true i think people have a perception that trafficking looks a certain kind of way can you explain a little bit more about that in particular sure yeah as an analyst i I tend to have things a little bit black and white but the un defines human trafficking as quote the recruitment transport transport transfer harboring receipt of persons but the means of the threat or use of force or other forms of coercion abduction fraud deception of the abuse of power or of a position of vulnerability or of giving or receiving of payments or benefits to achieve the consent of a person having control over another person for the purpose of exploitation. So given that definition, that's kind of what we focus on, we go off of, we, we work around. We have received a lot of witness reports and such 
uh, via our website and call-ins and text messages of, hey, I saw I saw this little girl over here and she was screaming too much and her parents weren't paying attention to her. I think she's being trapped. Right. Or I was at Walmart and somebody dropped a little piece of paper under my tire. I think I'm at risk of being trafficked. And I think there's a lot of misconceptions in social media right now about what entirely trafficking looks like. I mean, end of the day, it, it's a business. And however bad it sounds, the people that are being trafficked are the product, not to dehumanize them, but as the view, from the viewpoint of the traffickers, it doesn't make financial sense, in my opinion, to take random people off the street and risk that much kind of the, the danger surrounding all of that, especially right. if they're an adult. You know, the, the argument can be made for minors having a bit more of a, I hate to use the term market, but I guess essentially that's what that is. There's a bit more of a, of a niche want for that sort of thing. But of all the cases that we've worked in the last four or five years, I think three of them have been proper abductions. Right. Typically what we're seeing is that it's, you know, it's someone that they know or it's the relationship that kind of devolves. If you've ever watched the, the movie Rec Room for a Dream, um, I think that one very accurately depicts kind of a, a poor relationship that devolves into, you know, a lot of drug usage and a lot of the somewhat voluntary beginning that trafficking sometimes has. Not saying that trafficking is voluntary at all, but it does look a little differently than just getting kidnapped off the street, shoved into a jail cell in the basement somewhere and being forced to provide certain services to the strange right. people. I think that's important to know because I think I think everyone thinks that they'll recognize it when they see it because it'll be obvious and it's really not obvious. I know we did a case on the Serpent 13 and in that case their mother was trafficked by their grandmother. So sometimes it can be family trafficking and a lot of people don't realize that it can be internal in your family, it can be be husband and wife, it can be boyfriend and girlfriend. There's a lot of different ways that trafficking can look, and I think that's important to understand that it's, it's not always going to look a certain way. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you said, by someone I know especially, and I, I think given that trafficking is exploitation at its core, exploitation of someone else's will against their desires, there's a lot of spots where someone in need is exploited into that. Right. Be it they, they were financially unstable or they had housing issues or maybe drug dependencies or, you know, some of the girls that we speak to on the street, they are in the life, so to speak. And, and I will say that my mindset on that personally is that kind of the same thing with squares and rectangles, right? Like all squares are rectangles, not all rectangles are square. Right. Just because there's prostitution does not necessarily mean that they're being coerced against their will. I mean, a lot of times once they're an adult, there's not much we can do unless there's a specific outcry. Um, because if you pull them out forcefully, that in itself is kind of exploitation as well. Yeah. But going back to the, to the why, some of the girls I've talked to out there on the streets say, hey, they make two, three, four grand a night. That's their thing. They, they enjoy doing it and they enjoy the financial freedom it gives them. And for us personally, that's not something that we're going out there to focus our efforts on, given mm-hmm. that we're a small group of people who investigate. Our focus is specifically on, hey, we have a 14, 15, 16-year-old who's missing got abducted, was pulled, whatnot. But yeah, like you said, it, there's a lot of different types and starts to someone being trafficked. Yeah. You made a good point because you said that, you know, there's a market for children to be snatched off the street where that's not really the much of a market for adults. And I, I think that's because of supply and demand. You have some people that choose that life. And so there is some supply there. The market's not completely bare in, in regards to that. And I know we're talking about it very coldly, but from a, right. a child perspective, there's no supply except for what you 
right. force. There should be no demand as well. Yeah, there should be no demand. Right. There should be no demand. Could you share with our listeners the concept of counter-trafficking and its significance against the battle against human trafficking? We defined trafficking earlier as kind of the, the forceful coercion of someone into exploitation. And so counter-trafficking is, I mean, as simply as the opposite of that. You know, trafficking in, in general is a huge umbrella. It has a lot of different shapes. There's labor trafficking, there's forced exploitation, there's servitude, uh, sex trafficking. It's a whole umbrella field. Basically, it goes back to that core definition of coercion and exploitation. And that has a lot of different shapes and, and kind of globally, too, it looks very different. There's regional differences in what that exploitation looks like. And for us specifically, we focus on the investigation to assist families in law enforcement, specifically in the location and recovery of victims of commercial sexual exploitation. So of that giant umbrella of trafficking, we are kind of a sub-umbrella of a sub-umbrella. Mm-hmm. And that's what we particularly focus on in our counter-trafficking efforts. So in general, counter-trafficking's goals uh, are what they call the three Ps of protection, prevention, and prosecution. So you want to protect people from being exploited in the first place. And that's a whole conversation on kind of just general society and kind of the upbringing of children in, in this day and age. And mm-hmm. probably would be an entire different podcast. <laughs> um, and then prevention as well. And prevention kind of goes hand in hand with education, kind of letting people know what trafficking looks like and how you can stop it. And once you do find it, what to do about it and whatnot. And then the prosecution. You know, making sure that the people who are at the top of these these chains of trafficking are, are prosecuted for their crimes and are brought to some sort of not doing that anymore. I don't I don't quite yeah. know the word for it. I want to say justice, but I honestly not as a criticism of our country specifically, but I don't believe that we have a justice system. We have a legal system, right? And I've seen that a lot of times in person. And if there was justice, I wouldn't be working a lot of these cases. <laughs> yeah. That's true. Yeah. That's very accurate. One thing that I know that kind of sticks out to me is I know that we had talked about some of the red tape, but when you're dealing with, you know, a potential trafficking case, what type of red tape obstacles are you seeing? And why do you think that's important for the general public to understand when a case comes up? Like I know the one that you guys worked in um, Dallas, the Dallas Mavericks game, but like what kind of red tape should families be aware of when they're encountering a situation where they think maybe there's a potential trafficking case involved? To spin up law enforcement on any any of these cases, it needs to fit kind of neatly within a category, even trafficking itself. So if you look at a majority of the trafficking prosecution cases, uh, the convictions related to trafficking, at least in my experience, I would say that a lot of them don't end up being charged with trafficking. Uh, trafficking has a very specific set of requirements to be considered trafficking. A lot of times they're, they're charged with solicitation. You know, there's a few other minor charges. I'm not a lawyer, so I can't ex- exactly speak to, to all the, the ins and outs of what the charges are, but trafficking carries some very heavy sentences, you know, especially if you if you traffic, uh, at least here in Texas, if you traffic someone within a school or within a college, I think that carries a maximum penalty of like 99 years. But you have to prove trafficking, and proving trafficking is a very difficult thing to do. Right. And so, as in most other cases, as I'm sure you guys have seen with murder and whatnot, that mm-hmm. they opt in for the lower charge because, you know, we can't get them on trafficking, but we can get them on this. Or, hey, he had a pound of weed in his car, so we can get him out at least that. Right. And so they end up going for five years, ten years, a lot less. And so when the case begins, 
that's something that the, the officer that responds has to keep in mind is kind of what category does it fit in, what checkbox I filled it out because this is eventually going into its own category. And so what we see sometimes too, like the Dallas Mavericks case. Parents of a North Texas teenager have a warning to share with all of you tonight, and that is the reality that human sex trafficking can happen even to your family. That's right. That family says that their daughter went to a Mavs game and disappeared. CBS 11's Brooke Rogers with what every parent tonight should know. Our daughter, she loves going to the games, especially at this age. It should have been a night of cheering and celebrating the Mavs win over Portland. But Kyle Morris's 15-year-old stepdaughter left for the restroom and never came back. I kept looking over my shoulder towards the entrance to our section to see if, if she was coming back in. Surveillance video showed the teen in this garage near the AAC, leaving with an unidentified man. It would be another 10 days before she was found 200 miles away. The family's attorney tells CBS 11 the teen was lured out of the AAC under false pretenses by a sex trafficking ring. Bianca Davis, CEO of anti-trafficking agency New Friends New Life, says trafficking typically begins with grooming on social media. Um, it's not necessarily something where there is a random situation happening or a kidnapping in the in the street. I think if we're looking for white fans in a parking lot, that we've missed it. The Morrises say their daughter had left home before, but this was different. They contacted the Texas Counter Trafficking Initiative, who found her on April 18th in Oklahoma City. She started crying, and I walked up, and you know, I I was trying to be. Trying to be strong for her. She is now on the road to recovery, and three people have been charged with human trafficking and other offenses. Davis wants all parents to know that awareness and open communication are the best offenses. Who are her friends? Where is she going when she's not in school? Um, it's something that is so subtle, and we really have to have our antennas up before a moment like the Mavs game happens. They reported their the child is missing, and because she got up and left voluntarily at the beginning, right? So she was in the in the, the stadium, got up and left with the person. The technical terminology or the technical category for that situation is a runaway, right. and so the minute that you put that sort of title on it, it falls under an entirely different category. I mean, basically, they look at it and they put it in the back of the drawer, and they're like, "All right, we find them, we find them." If not, what you know, it just is what it is, and that's that's no that's no fault of that necessarily. They only have so many resources to, to chase down runaways as well, because you do have runaways, and people come back. You have runaway yeah. adults that just needed a day or two to themselves or whatnot. They'll come back, and so law enforcement doesn't necessarily spend a lot of resources on those situations. And so, if they're kidnapped forcefully, like on camera, that's a different situation. But that doesn't really ever happen. And if it's a, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, or something that just turned off their phone, took all their social media away, locked them out of their accounts, took their car keys or whatever, then that's a different situation as well because you also don't know for a fact that they're being trapped. You just have your suspicions. And so they can investigate, they can do welfare checks and such, but yeah. it's very difficult for them to take that box on traffic. And I can recall one case that I was asked to, to partake in where we were called basically right when the law enforcement agencies were called. And in this particular case, this girl was walking along the street and some friends from school that she recognized pulled up and they asked her to get in the car because they were going to party or whatever. And so she jumped in cool. And then the parents didn't hear from her in like a day. Turns out they had taken her all the way to 
San Antonio and kind of gone about, it wasn't just the party. I'll kind of just leave it at that. There was a bit more to it involved. And so because she had voluntarily gotten in the car, they wanted to file it on the runaway. But the responding officer, great officer, uh, will always sing his praises. It didn't sit well with him. And so he was like, what can I do? And so he called the sergeant, had a conversation with the sergeant. And the sergeant said, okay, we'll call homicide. So he called homicide. And homicide, I will remember this moment forever. He had the phone on speaker for whatever reason. He was speaking with the family so that they could also hear kind of what was going on. I, I don't know if that's SOP, but that's what was going on. Yeah. And he was talking to Homicide and said, hey, we have this missing girl. This, this, this happened. My sergeant told me to call you. Homicide goes, is she dead yet? <laughs> wow. In front of the family on speaker. And yeah. the whole thing was just, you know, I mean, and I, I don't necessarily blame them, right? Because they, they have their jobs that they do, their yeah. investigation, their role. And so, you know, for them, it's like, okay, is this person dead? If not, why are you calling? Right. And so they were like, okay, call missing person. And so then he called missing person. And it was just this huge runaround of yeah. no, call this person, no, call this person. And there's not a lot of resources. So ultimately, we ended up helping him kind of run down the license plates on the vehicle and mm-hmm. calling the, the, it was a rental car. So chasing down the rental agency and see who owned it and yada yada, chasing it down, locating it and so on and so forth. And we, we ended up getting here recovered in coordination with local law enforcement in that town that they ended up going to. But it's just one of those things where the officer said that he had been on the force for 20-some years, and he had never seen such a runaround. And honestly, I see it happen pretty often. I mean, and it's to no fault of anyone. It's difficult to categorize some of these things. There's not really a division right. within law enforcement that investigates maybe cases, you know. Um, that's just very time-consuming. It's a system, and when the problem doesn't fit the system perfectly, there's a gap. Who handles this? And I think it's very interesting because you said, you know, a runaway versus a kidnapping. Well, that's a crime versus a non-crime. A runaway is not even a crime. A crime hasn't even been committed yet. So, of course, they're not going to expend a lot of resources on a runaway. They're going to wait to see how, it, you know, how it, like you said, how it turns out. I think Crystal asked me, too, why it was important for, for people to know kind of about these, these kind of red tape surrounding all this. But one of the things I'll say, too, is in my experience of speaking with the parents, which honestly sometimes speaking with the parents is more difficult than the actual work. Yeah. I mean, that's your child, you know, there's a lot of emotions involved. It's really difficult to kind of present things logically when your 15 year old's out and you don't know where they're at. But the thing to know too is, you know, I'd like to think that a lot of law enforcement officials are also frustrated by that and that they want to help. And so being able to present the information in such a way that it's not just this hodgepodge of throwing data at them, because that's usually all that we do is, we walk in there and there's already all the information that needs to be, you know, we may look up a couple of things here and there and mm-hmm. I'm no Google ninja. I just, I have slightly above average skills, I would say, but we piece some things together, put it together nicely and make an organized report and go, Hey, here's the facts. Here's what I know. Here's what I don't know. And here's what we need to know. And a lot of times, even just having that conversation you know, I, I definitely don't blame the parents. I, I couldn't yeah. imagine being in such a spot of having to try and think logically in such a time. But a lot of times when we go on scene, there's family members too. You have aunts, uncles, cousins, brothers, and everyone's kind of running around and trying to call people or making Facebook posts or and all that. And amidst that chaos, sometimes things kind of fall through the cracks. The information gets lost here and there. There's a lot of he said, she said. And what we do is kind of sift through the noise and put yeah. and go, okay, here is all the information on the silver platter. Do with this what you need to. And that's a lot of our, our focus. Yeah. 
That's good. Well, it definitely seems like you guys are a force multiplier for the police force and you close the gap where they would need to deploy resources in order to gather all that information and go out and, and question people and get all that information. But when you bring it all wrapped up like that and you present it, now it's just the information that they need to go execute. It helps kind of push things forward. Right. What kind of information is most important for you guys from friends and families and witnesses and stuff whenever something like this takes place that really help you guys the most? Like what kind of information is really good information to give you? I always start with high resolution, clear image of them facing forward. You know, we really need that, that facial vectoring that's really aligned that, that can help us locate ads, that can help us locate potentially other websites where they're, they're being posted. You know, all of that's really really critical. The the date when this happened as well. Sometimes we have people reach out to us and they go, "Hey, my friend's daughter is missing." Okay, well, it changes the game a little bit if it was today or three years ago or four months ago. So we, we definitely want to see the last date that that they were seen. Social media handles for sure. Anything online, whether that's smaller or big, you know, TikTok handles, Instagram handles, phone numbers, emails, all of that. Because a lot of times. With phone numbers, I can search up social media handles that you may not even know they have. There's a lot of features and functions that we have available where I can find Snapchats, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, because all that information is on the platform with the phone numbers and emails and such. Uh, definitely emails if you have access to it. Any devices, if you happen to have them, there's ways to gain access to it. You can kind of read through, especially if they're a minor. Uh, with adults, there's a bit more of, uh, of red tape surrounding that, but with uh, phones that belong to minors in the possession of the parent with the permission available, we can kind of look through it and see what we can find. And sometimes we'll find text messages that are a little sketchy or deleted things, images. It's like, okay, well, what were you doing on this day? Why is this geotagged over here at this park when you said you were at a school function type thing? And then that can kind of lead to well, who are they talking to? And then so on and so forth. Kind of go from there. You know, we like to know kind of where they hang out as well, kind of what, what are they up to, what do they like to do after school activities and such. And that's all like beyond the immediate, you know, height, weight, what were they wearing, eye color, hair color, et cetera, the things that you would normally see on a missing person poster. That's always the first kind of order of business. And then from there, my particular questions revolve more around online presence, social media, all of that. So that's kind of what I focus on particularly. JP does more of a the physical asset part of it. So. Typically when we watch shows like 48 hours, you know, they're trying to identify who committed the crime within 48 hours. What is a good timeline for like reporting a crime like this when something happens? Should parents be waiting four or five days to confirm when they think their child has run away or something like that or, or is sooner better? I mean, immediately. If your child goes to the grocery store and they're supposed to be back in 30 minutes and they weren't, uh, you know, I'm not saying be overly paranoid. Mm -hmm. There's a there's a line between caution and paranoia, and I, I think especially around some of the anti-trafficking stuff, a lot that line is blurred a lot, especially around some of the social media and some of the recent media that's kind of been surrounding this topic. But if you have reason to believe that they're missing, that they haven't answered their phone, it's not like them that they have been back, and you went there, you checked, you didn't see, and that sort of thing. There's a bit of due diligence involved, but immediately, yeah. the minute that you think that. They're, they're no longer where they said they were going to be or you think something may be up. There is no reporting limit. It could be 10 minutes. It could be 10 days. It could be 10 years. You can file with the police department, at least that initial missing thing. If the officer shows up and you're filling out the paperwork and they show back up, officer just goes, all right, cool. Have a nice day, right? Like no harm, no foul, no issue. Right. You thought something was going on and it's fine. 
but don't delay on, on sort of that initial reporting. I think the 48 hour thing for me is not an accurate timeline of that sort of thing. There's a lot of statistics that say that within the first week, someone who's not found will end up on the streets. For us, at least with what we do on the technological side, my limit at least is like 90 days. It's not a hard stop, but if we're seeing ads on someone and we stop seeing ads on someone for 90 days, that's kind of where we get a little bit worried about, well, they may no longer be with us, so to speak. If we have someone that's being trafficked, a lot of times what we do too is track the locations of the ads. So we'll see them in Houston, for example, and then three days later in Dallas, and then three days later in somewhere near Oklahoma or Denver or, you know, and we kind of see them moving around because they don't like to stay in kind of the same area for too long. And if we start to see that the the ads no longer are slowing down or no longer existing, then there's a lot of questions involved, you know, did did they get pregnant? Are they injured? Are they no longer with us at all? That sort of thing. But 90 days is kind of our timeline, so to speak. Gotcha. Uh, That's 90 days of since last seen. Right. That makes sense. From your experience, could you kind of shed some light on what you think the most prevalent type of trafficking victim is? It's mostly just people in need, honestly. I know that trafficking has kind of this app of being this, this thing, this, this giant organization that's snatching people off the streets and, and doing all of that. But I think mostly it's, it's people in rough financial situations, people that have possibly unstable housing, uh, their own house, and that sort of thing. And, and the type of victim is a person who is... is exploited by someone that they know or they think they know most of the time, at least in my experience. Um, I don't know what the exact statistics are on that, but a mother, a father, a brother, a boyfriend, a friend that you met. Uh, I mean, we've had a couple cases from girls who were at homeless centers here in Houston. And there's a guy that was like, oh, you know, I have a business idea. You just need to do this, that, and the other. And things kind of evolve over time there's a little bit of grooming involved it's like oh well, would you be willing to do this would you be and then they kind of push that envelope further and further and further and the next thing you know two years down the line you're standing on this event right. and um, it's just one of those things where it's, it's, it's sad really because it's, it's not always an immediate thing sometimes it's a slower thing and there's a lot of emotional manipulation involved there's a lot of it kind of goes hand in hand with uh, domestic abuse as well kind of the same I'm, I'm no psychologist and I can't speak on that but kind of the same mentality from the abuser using the same kind of mental tricks to gaslight people into thinking certain things or making them feel like, well, you can't survive out there on your own. You need me. You need to be doing this, you know, or you have a child now. What are you going to do? You can't go to school. And, and sometimes too, is system isn't kind to people stuck in that. So if at least down here in Houston, um, I, I can't speak about any other States. That's probably Texas wide as well. But if you're, out on uh, Bissonnette, which is one of the major streets down here, and you get arrested for prostitution, well, that's a felony. So right. now you're charged with a felony. And let's say you don't have any, any educational background, you don't have any work history. So you get out of the, make your bond or whatnot, and like, do your bail. You get out, and it's like, okay, well now I'm hungry. I need a pay rent. I don't have a job. I can't get a job because there's a felony under my name. You know, I don't have any any edu- education to, to fall back on because a lot of times there's there's that involved too. And so, what do you do next? You know, the one thing that you've been doing this this whole time to get money and a lot of money, at that right? You know, quick cash, and then you know you could work a week and make ten grand. And so, when you have children, you have bills to pay. I mean, that's just the reality of the world. Yeah. That's kind of the most prevalent victim that I see is kind of someone 
stuck in a situation for more than just physical reasons. Right. I noticed that with trafficking in particular, that it doesn't matter. So I know every state has like a legal age for consent. And I know that specifically with trafficking, that it doesn't matter if the person's 17 in a state, if they're under 18, it's considered trafficking, even if they say that they're agreeing to it. So I'm agreeing at 17 to to make $4,000 a day. So I wanted people to understand that that there isn't red tape there, that that's very clearly stated, you know, that if they're under 18, it's it's trafficking, even if they're agreeing to do, do it because they're underage. Correct. Yeah, thank you for that clarification. Minors cannot consent, full stop. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that's kind of my opinion on that. So. Considering the prevalence of online platforms, how susceptible are young individuals to being targeted online? I would say very. I mean, if you look at just the prevalence of scams, you know, the amount of people who get targeted by, hey, this is the IRS. If you don't give us $10,000 in Apple cards, we're going to send you to jail. And the amount of people that kind of <laughs> are involved in that. If you kind of think of that just in general, the lack of knowledge surrounding technology, you know, I would say very prevalent. And it's just general exploitation of people, right? Regardless of, of what that looks like, whether that be scams or phishing or social engineering at its core. Um, and I, I think the interesting thing with younger individuals, too, is at least with older individuals, you know, they, technology wasn't around when they were in their in their prime, so to speak. And so when it did come around, you know, there's a lot of older people that don't know how to print PDFs and, and don't know what a tour is or right. uh, why does this Internet have an onion, you know, that, that sort of thing. And I, I don't blame them. I mean, it's, it's different times. Things move along very quickly. And even for people who are in that field professionally, it takes a lot of effort to actively keep up with this field. I mean, it's changing day to day, you know, yeah. I mean, and that's an entire conversation on tech as well. But I think the interesting thing for younger people is that they have this weird mix of knowing a lot, and not knowing a single thing either. So you have, you know, toddlers that are able to use an iPad better yeah. than a lot of adults that I know. So but at true. the same time, not, not a lot, not a lot of them have the knowledge of, well, why does this work the way that it does? Right. Right. I have a younger sister. She's in that sort of Zoomer age, you would say. Um, and she has all the apps, TikTok, Snapchat, Instagram, and whatnot. And I do too to try and keep up, but I, I don't care much for social media because it's kind of my day job. So I, <laughs> I don't use it for enjoyment. I can't stand it personally, but she's very familiar on how to use it because all these interfaces are very user-friendly. It's very click-tap, this, that, and the other. But mm-hmm. the underlying knowledge of what this is, with a social engineering, when you click this link, like they can see your IP, that sort of thing. And I say on top of that, kind of the normalization that society has had over the last few years of being okay to give up your data. You know, people don't read user agreements anymore because they're fifty thousand pages long, and it's like, hey, you want to use this app? That's cool, but you have to give us, you know, five dollars a month, your firstborn, and all of your data <laughs> for the next month or whatnot. Yeah, and so. All of that is very easily exploitable. And that's just in general with technology. That's, a, that's I suppose, a broader conversation going on. But specifically as it goes towards trafficking, those are just tools, just as any other tools. I mean, trafficking has been around for forever. Mm-hmm. And if you have more media and more tools to do whatever it is that you do, you're going to use them. You know, if you look at financial scams, they have more tools nowadays. There's everyone's starting a stock app. So there's, there's scams there. If you're looking at sort of the, the whole field of technology makes it very exploitable for good and bad purposes. And so 
in, in the professional terminology, it's like threat actors, I suppose. But these the traffickers are using these tools just like any other. So they're just as susceptible as anything else. And the added bonus to social media is that it's essentially anonymous. Yeah. I mean, I have a lot of accounts where I'm, you know, a, 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 a cute teen from Oklahoma or whatever. Right, right. And I have guys who reach out to me and they're like, hey, you know, like, here's my number, text me up or whatnot. And it's like, well, now I have your number. Thanks, bro. Yeah. <laughs> but you can be anyone. You could be a 50-year-old man and pretend to be 14 online. And mm-hmm. the anonymity that comes with being online goes both ways. And I'd say that it's easier to target people online them in person because a lot of people in person know knows what like danger looks like. Right? You have someone walking up to you right. fast with their hand in their pocket or that sort of thing. You know you're kind of on edge of is am I going to get stabbed, shot, whatnot. You're kind of kind of prepared for that in the physical environment, but not 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 a lot of people know what that looks like in the online environment. That's a lot of education that's needed, and it's continuing education because the minute that you learn something, the field changes again, yeah. and there's a new app. There's a new tool. There's a new whatnot. So I'd say I'd say pretty susceptible, um, but everyone is. I would say just yeah. in general, from like a cybersecurity standpoint. What would you say is is the the app of choice for people looking to try to traffic others? What would be the app that you would think would be used most? I've seen a lot of Instagram. Yeah, I've seen a lot of Instagram. Twitter is not really the place for that sort of thing. I mean, I. I Twitter is more like for advertisements for other things, but Instagram DMs, you know, because they you they set to private. A lot of what people have what they call a finsta, right? So you have your main Instagram, which you have your like your mom, your grandma, and for sharing vacation pictures, and then you have your finsta where you follow like your drug dealer and whatnot. And so a lot of people have different accounts, and so they use sort of things. Conversations can then be taken to WhatsApp, Telegram, Signal, you know, and those are just the ones I know off the top of my head. But there's there's a lot more. There's hidden calculator apps and such that end up being file folders. I've seen Discord uh, pop up a couple times, so it could be used for kind of grooming in schools where you have one person who runs the, the Discord server, and then you know it's sort of like, I don't say like a gang initiation type thing, but there's like an expectation of like, okay, well, if you join the server, you have to be cool with the things that go on it and right. that sort of thing. Um you know, sometimes a lot of like sexually explicit images are shared and they kind of normalizes that like, Hey, no, like this is cool. Uh, your turn <laughs> and that right. sort of thing. And it kind of just evolves from there, but mostly Instagram. I mean, a lot of the conversations that we deal with, at least when they, they go through Instagram, I haven't seen very many things, at least in my experience, go through dark web, that sort of things. A lot of people aren't technologically advanced enough to kind of go through that. And, right. Dark web is a very specialized market as well. Um, if you're jumping on there, you probably are looking for more of the, the child-oriented stuff, but mm. in, like the extreme case. So that would be four-year-olds to 10-year-olds type thing. Right. Um, and that's not a, I mean, that's a super niche market. With Again, speaking coldly about it, I, I don't want people to think that, you know, using the term market is dehumanizing anyone in particular, but yeah. um, that's just how the traffickers look at it. Uh, it's it's more of a it's more of a niche thing. So right, right. people aren't getting four to ten year olds off of Instagram, uh, at least in my experience. You know, yeah. I, I don't work DOD or DHS or FBI, so I, I can't speak to that. But right. I haven't seen any of that. For families that are facing situations that might necessitate your organization's services or similar support, what advice do you offer, and what guidance would you extend to law enforcement professionals in such scenarios? 
so if anyone's needing help, I mean, definitely reach out. We've had all sorts of people reach out, and I, I do my best to, to kind of respond to the messages. So whenever you go to the website and send a message on the form, that comes directly to me and to the team via our phone, so we get pop-up notifications about it. And when I read it, if it's something obviously immediate, you know, we'll, we'll reach out to them and recommend that they, they reach out to the immediate authorities first, since we're not law enforcement. But if it's something on the investigation side, something on you know, the image searching side, look, for ads across several cities, that sort of thing, we'll, we'll definitely do our best to help. Uh, and if we can, then we also know a lot of other nonprofits in the area who can help. You know, it's not exclusively just a recovery. I guess going into a deeper rabbit hole, so to speak, on that, there's a lot of facets to the trafficking, right? So there's the prevention process, which is kind of the education a lot of people do and kind of outreach. Uh, there's the recovery and extraction phase, which is someone making an outcry going, hey, I need help, pull me out of this. A lot of times there's a protection stage. Once they are pulled out, you know, sometimes the, the trafficker is violent. It's like, okay, we need to put you in a safe house with no internet and no cell service for a couple of days to, to make sure you're okay and kind of get you off the grid. The rehabilitation aspect of it, so whether they need mental therapy, physical therapy, assistance with, with any, any drug withdrawals, whether that be alcohol, heroin, meth, et cetera. And then after the fact, kind of once all the dust has settled, so to speak, there's that process of kind of reintegration in society and whatever that looks like for them. Let's get you a job. Let's get you an education, a GED, a college degree, you know, that sort of thing. Let's set you up with someone who can who give you those resources to get you set up to where you don't feel like you need to go back into the life for that particular thing uh, because of the reasons that I, I spoke about earlier. Uh, and then kind of the last final step is like prosecution, right? Like, let's, let's go after these guys and just to see you that's always the longest step. I mean, that's, that could take years for a lot of people. And I know that was, that was a bit of a rabbit hole, but all that to say is that there's a lot of facets of this. And I'm of the opinion that no one particular nonprofit can take care of all of it. It's a right. very big task. Right. And there's a lot of nonprofits that do each part of that very specifically. Uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't dare dreaming of touching the prosecution side of it. I'm not an expert in that. Mm-hmm. I'd be doing more harm than good. Mm-hmm. And kind of knowing where your limits are and what you can and can't do I think offers a lot of benefit to the the issue. And so, you know, we've made it kind of our goal to kind of know a lot of these organizations that do these sort of things. And we're always on, on the lookout for more, but someone reaches out to us and they go, Hey, I just recovered my daughter. She was kidnapped and we have reason to believe the pimp is after her. What can we do? We can try and set you up. We, we don't do protection services, but we may know someone who does. And right. we can try and set you up with that. We can kind of, and kind of liaise that conversation. And that's the whole point of the initiative in Texas kind of trafficking initiative, right? We kick things off with the, with the investigation, kind of get that started. But we don't have to be the ones that cross the finish line. And right. at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who does. As long as the person who needs support gets support from organizations that can provide it. And so, if, you know, someone needs services and needs support, I'd say reach out. Uh, and, and then with that, too, don't reach out to just one organization. You know, we're not the end all be all. At least the Houston United Against Human Trafficking, the National Trafficking Hotline as well. I mean, hit up, hit up everything. Yeah. Ask, you know, knock, knock on every door. Some people take a long time answering. Some people won't answer. Some people answer immediately and you never know. And so, you know, uh, any and all resources, I think, you know, in that sort of situation, I mean, the most that you're doing is bugging someone with an email and if they don't want to read it, they don't read it, but you tried. Right. And kind of, on that too, don't don't stop bugging the cops. I mean, <laughs> I've I've talked to families where it's like, well, you know, I talked to the detective, 
like two weeks ago. I'm like, no, call him again. You know, leave him a voicemail, send him a text, send him an email. You don't have his email. I'll help you find it. (laughs) It's probably public. So, you know, keep that pressure on. If it's someone that you care about that you, you think needs an assistant, don't stop, don't give up. I think that's the hardest part of it, too, is that people sometimes expect a sprint when it's a marathon. And it's exhausting. And I, I've, I've talked to a lot of a lot of domestic abuse victims as well where you know, that whole situation is it's never really done. It's always going to come back up. It's always an issue that needs to be resolved again. There's always some something else that happens with it. And it, you need a lot of patience and you need to keep going. But it's a bit of a marathon and not to stop. Yeah. And as far as guidance for the law enforcement professionals, I would say on the other side of that too, like a lot of people don't have the same stoicism that, that law enforcement officials have, you know, from the officers I've met and from the people I've, I've worked with in my day job that have done the overseas work as operators and such, you get kind of bold sometimes to certain things. You see it as kind of a, a stat. You see it as kind of, you know, I'm, I'm clocking in at eight I'm clocking out at five. And, you know, if this goes to 505, well, I'll hand it off to the next officer and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not saying that this all officers is not a criticism of law enforcement in general, but there, I think, needs to be that kind of understanding of this is this person's possibly worst day of their life. Mm-hmm. And you are walking into that and they are expecting some sort of assistance. And so the patience and understanding that, that you can provide will help at the very least comfort them in the moment. You know, and I, I think that that's a lot of education that's needed sometimes too on, on what trafficking looks like because they're very quick to go, what category does this fall under? What can I do with it? And right. I, again, I'm not saying all law enforcement officials, so there's some fantastic officers out there. Yeah. They, they get the work done. But if they're needing assistance with certain things, again, we, we provide assistance to everyone. We're just civilians at the end of the day. Anyone who asks, we've worked alongside DPS, DHS, FBI. And uh, we've kind of established those relationships with them, but we're happy to help out whoever. I mean, if we need to do a talk, we need to do an education thing, I'm happy to do it. And then along that too, kind of just, I'd say this for any professional in any field, but seek continuing education. There's a lot of courses that can be done on your own time or sometimes even offered by certain cities or certain states that's that's funded by them. It's, you know, an hour or two of your time that kind of does, a lot of those trainings on what does it look like? How can you recognize it? Who do you report it to? What does that process look like? You know, what organizations can, can assist and that sort of thing. And there's a lot of anti-trafficking organizations out there that do work with, with educating law enforcement and educating families on the interactions with law enforcement and such. And I think that's fantastic. It's not something that we do, but I, I, I do think that's very needed and uh, amazing work as well. Oh, that's incredible. Sorry, that was a bit of a long-winded answer. No, that, <laughs> no, that's that was awesome. very thorough. Very, very thorough. It's funny that in 2023, it still takes a village. It takes everyone working together, all these resources coming together to help keep our kids protected, to help keep our families protected. Um, you talked about the website. Can you can you give us a website? The initials for Texas County Trafficking Initiative, so T-X-C-T-I, and that's .org, uh, O-R-G. From the website there, you can kind of submit a form if you have any questions, comments, concerns, whatnot. Um, we do have a donation box. We, we very gladly accept donations. On the donations, I'll, I'll clarify, uh, none of us on there have a salary. We support operations basically for, for the most part for the last few years out of pocket until we recently received this kind of this wave of attention from, from the recent Mavericks situation. But all the finances that we 
Steve are used directly to support operations. So that'll be hotels uh, when we need to kind of do recoveries. A lot of times what we'll do is we'll get hotels on the strip or next door to someone that we think may be being trafficked and just pretend to kind of be in the area and such. But cars, uh, for, like for the gas, you know, expenses for that sort of thing. If we do end up having to get them any immediate resources, the, the finances go towards that as well and such. And, uh, maybe down the line we're, we'll, we'll look at kind of getting some full-time positions on board. For right now, everyone's a volunteer. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's what that goes down to. And then there's also the, uh, the contact us page on there. So uh, feel free to hit that up. And there's all of our emails on there. You can email us directly. We'll provide all those links and stuff in the show notes as well so that people can access them. If people want to get involved in any way, whether that's to volunteer with you guys or provide any type of resources or anything of that nature, what would they need to do? So you can always fill out the form that's on our website. There's no requirement on what goes on the form. So anything and everything can be sent through there. I will say that currently, given our, our financial situation, we're not hiring uh, we've had we've had that question a couple times where you know, someone's like, "Oh, are you, are you guys hiring for operations and such?" Um, currently, we're not. We are sort of looking for someone within the Houston, Dallas, San Antonio kind of triangle to maybe help us on on the street side of things. But I'm also kind of starting up a team of dedicated cybersecurity, open source intelligence, and military intelligence intelligence professionals. It's a bit of a of a new venture, and I'm kind of playing it by ear as I go, but. Essentially, we have we have a server full of these people, and what we're doing is gathering cold cases and active cases that we get invited on, and crowdsourcing the analysis work behind it. Anything and everything that we can kind of put together, and then kind of packaging it nicely and giving it to the appropriate authorities. So that's a, that's a bit of a goal that we're starting. But if anyone wants to get involved on in that cybersecurity front, uh, OSINT task, uh, they can email me at support. S-U-P-P-O-R-T at txtti.org. Uh, that email will kind of be filtered in, into that kind of task. And there's a lot of organizations that, that are in the anti-trafficking field. I have been told by some contacts that we had in DPS that uh, there's only like two or three organizations in Texas that specifically focus on investigation. But as far as the uh, education side of things, prevention, outreach, there's a lot of groups. Spend a lot of time there. Uh, reach out to them as well. I'm sure, like any anything in this this whole field, like I, I mentioned earlier, there's there's so many aspects of the trafficking and, and anti-trafficking process that there, I mean, anyone can do something, you know. Yeah. And like you said, it takes a village. So, yeah. is there anything else that you want to share that you'd like to put out or that we didn't cover? Well, so you, you had asked earlier, what does trafficking look like? What's the most prevalent type of trafficking victim? And kind of talked about the the mental states and the kind of the situations that revolve around being people being trafficked. But I wanted to bring up that according to the UN and the few other statistics I, I saw, I don't have the exact source for them. So I do apologize for those who like sources, but the majority of trafficking revolves around forced labor, that being child labor, migrants, and specifically in farms and factories. And a lot of times there's also, you know, the, the, the dodge parlors and stuff. And so I, I think at least in the U S a lot of the labor trafficking statistics, are probably misrepresented. Uh, and I only say that because sex trafficking is more visible. And so a lot of the sex trafficking statistics that we have come from people reporting into the national trafficking hotline. But labor trafficking looks very different. And it's just as bad because you're still coercing someone in, into, into a forced situation. Uh, but a lot of the times, I mean, they lead somewhat normal-looking lives. I mean, they may have children, they have cars, they have phones. 
it's not something that from the outside looking in, unless you specifically know the situation, they would show. And, and sometimes, too, with those who are miners working in farms and factories, as we've seen recently in, in, in the U.S., there's been a few articles on some companies getting hit with severe fines for all that. You know, if you're 14 and, and you're the only source of financial resource for your family, you're not really going to go out there saying that that's what you're doing because then that's going to get shut down and now your family can't eat. So I eventually want to kind of expand into labor trafficking, especially down here in the South, you know, farms, factories, kind of the forced labor that comes up from Honduras, Guatemala, El Salvador. A lot of that, I think there's not enough conversation around some of the trafficking around that. And I, I, I would like to bring that a bit more to the forefront because in my opinion, it's, it's, it's right up there with coercion, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and so a lot of people don't self-identify that they're being trafficked because they themselves don't know that that's necessarily what the title is behind it. Right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I definitely think that education is a big gap in that in that arena for sure. Yeah, uh, it's, it's definitely difficult, especially socially. You know, how do you how do you start those conversations sometimes, too, especially with with people who are wanting to just make their way one way or another? When you're in violation of a law or you're breaking a law, even being in the country. And now you're being trafficked and who are, who are you going to tell that to? Yeah. You know, who are you going to report it to? I mean, a, a lot of immigrants are taught to keep their head down. I mean, yeah. I, my, myself, I came from Venezuela and, you know, we, we came here legally and all that good stuff. But still, it's like, you know, keep your head down, you know, learn the language for the school. Yeah. <laughs> um, don't you know, cause don't any trouble. To yourself. There's, there's yeah. a lot of, right. Yeah. So yeah. I, I haven't even had a traffic ticket to my name. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so. You're a unicorn. You know, that sort of. <laughs> Right. And so it's like, you know, I, a lot of that conversation I don't think is had with a lot of the, the, the communities of color. And it's, it's, it's one of the things that I think does need to happen eventually. You know, obviously sex trafficking is, is a very important issue, but I, I think the larger umbrella of trafficking sometimes is lost within the conversation that's currently surrounding a lot of the media and a lot of the attention um, mm-hmm. just because it's, it's more, I don't want to say it's an easier conversation to have. But there are a lot of nuances within labor trafficking and a lot of a lot of money. I mean, there's yeah. there's a lot of people who benefit very well from underpaying workers. Yep. And that's a conversation that I think a lot of people are not ready to have either. And uh, I'm not going to have that anytime soon. So, <laughs> <laughs> Crystal and I, we, we owned a business in a, where we were challenged with other businesses not hiring their labor above the table. And so that really made things challenging for us as a business trying to do the right thing, competing against businesses who are doing the wrong thing. You can't compete. You just can't compete. Right. Yeah. One of our biggest competitors was bringing people in from out of the country. And what they would do was they would house them in different areas and rent a house. They'd put 20 guys in there and they would work out of that house. They'd pay them real low. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, and that's, Trafficking. I mean, by, by is, the definition yeah. that the UN has of, of coerced <laughs> labor, I mean that is that is trafficking. That's one hundred percent difficult conversation to have. Yeah, because like you said, it's there's so much money behind it. And it's like how do you how do you compete with? Well, people don't want to pay twenty dollars for a basket of strawberries, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like there's this, this conversation around kind of the economy and a lot of stuff. And I think as a country, we're not necessarily ready for that. And I, I won't I won't delve into that. Yeah. But you know, I, I think there's a lot of important conversations around that we have yet to have had. And, you know, I think there's a lot of knowledge on sex trafficking. There's a lot of visibility. There's a lot of education. And that's great. I'm all for that. But I also would like to eventually expand into capital T trafficking. 
Yeah. Um, you know, and, and what that looks like. I mean, you have people coming over from China, Japan, South Korea too, on, on false premises of work and they come over and then they, they take their visas, they take their licenses yep. and now you can't leave. Mm-hmm. And so like, yeah, you have a job, you have a house, you make money, but you can't leave. And so that you're indentured from a, yeah, from a definition perspective, that is trafficking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you are coercing someone to, to force labor. And, you know, I, and I think it's more difficult to spot, which is why I think it's a little bit underreported and why it's not as prevalent as in the conversation now. But that is something that is kind of, I don't know, some, something I would like to eventually tackle. Yeah, it sounds like a, another podcast sometime in the, in the near future is what <laughs> yeah. it sounds like. <laughs> you have a lot of good information and you're sharing a lot of good points. And I, I think this is things that people need to hear. Just in the conversation what you were just having just now, something clicked in my mind. There was a guy from the Middle East that was working in a cell phone office and he said he couldn't quit that job until he had worked there for so many years. And just now that was just clicking in my mind. I'm like, is he being trafficked? Is he being labor trafficked? Right. Especially in California. I mean, I would imagine there's a lot of labor trafficking that goes on oh, in California. And that's, that's why it's important to have these conversations, you know, yeah. to kind of recognize that and, and be able to, to, you know, yeah. Do something about it. And I think to your point, I think I think that the sex trafficking is very in your face, very black and white wrong. We can all look at that and go, this is wrong. But then on the on the labor side, right. it's more gray. It's like, ah, this is you know, it's not good, but you can't yeah. really say that it's wrong. Yeah, they're getting paid, but they're not getting paid what they should be getting paid. Or right. they, they don't have the freedom to leave if they want to leave, and that's a problem. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean I, ultimately for me, I think yeah. my, my belief kind of boil down to if you subvert the will of another human like mm-hmm. that's one of the ulti- most ultimate wrongs that you can do right regardless of what that looks like yeah. you know and it's, and it's like you said it's a difficult conversation to have because you're providing i mean not providing a lot but those people have work whatever mm-hmm. that looks like and so you know it's the impact on the economy the impact on, on the society it's just it's a larger conversation that like i said i, I don't yeah. think that the, the u.s is ready to have <laughs> yeah yeah In 2018, Minnesota witnessed an intricate year-long preparation for a SEER 1 event. SEER stands for Special Event Assessment Rating. And what that is, so a level one is actually the highest level that you have right under a presidential visit, which requires a lot of pre-planning and positioning and things of that nature. During this process, you know, there was it was very meticulous planning that involved collaborative efforts amongst various agencies encompassing law enforcement, medical personnel, logistics, airspace control, and more. You know, these preparations were tailored to the specific event type, crowd size, and associated risk factors. Notably, major events like the Super Bowl often lead to exuberant festivities marked by partying and indulgence, which inadvertently creates an environment that's conducive to certain illicit activities. Recognizing this, the proactive approach included targeted training to spot instances of human trafficking across various sectors, including banking, law enforcement, medical establishments, transportation services, and hotels. As a result of these preparations, nearly 20 trafficking victims were successfully rescued during this period surrounding pre- and post-event celebrations. This case underscores the significance of such integrated efforts in combating the hidden horrors that can emerge during large gatherings. 
And so basically, for those of you that aren't aware of, you know, there's a lot of coordinated efforts that take place. And just to give you an idea, because there was, you know, hundreds of private planes that flew in for this event, capacity for the city of what the city was able to handle was so astronomical that we had to bring in extra law enforcement. We had to bring in extra EMS units in case something medical took place. And all of this is, you know, it requires a very high level of collaboration amongst a lot of different agencies. And based on the size and the type of event and based on the SEER level indicated who would be, you know, responsible for this event as a whole. In that, you have things like, you know, the Super Bowl has this 10 days of partying up until the Super Bowl event. And then typically there's some things after as well because of all the partying and whatnot. We did training with these different places so that they could recognize what human trafficking looked like. And there was a lot of people that were rescued during that time frame. So just things for, for people to be aware of. I think nowadays there is a lot more training going in, especially where people are going to encounter human traffickers, such as airlines such as hotels, such as ride shares. Like, I think it's really important that this we continue with these trends and maybe these service type of functional jobs or, or locations like uh, the hospitalities and transportation businesses need to continue to push that level of training to identify because we don't always know what trafficking looks like. We assume we know what it looks like. We think it looks like A, but it can look like A, B, C, or D. So right. I think it's really important to continue to push that education. Stefano, we, we really appreciate you coming to the table today and, and speaking with us about human trafficking. And it was very insightful. I learned a lot today in our, in our conversation. I think you guys are fighting the good fight. If we can help in any kind of way, whether that's through promoting your efforts, you know, sharing with, with, with our audience, anything that you guys have going on. Well, yeah, thank you very much. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, any and all help is, is, is uh, very much appreciated in, in this thing. Like I said, it's a fight. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a long one too, and it's one that's been going on since like oh. forever, and will probably go on for another little bit. Yeah. Uh, so, you called it a marathon, man, and that's <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's it is. True. It's a marathon. Yeah, I mean, every time one case is solved, there's five more. You know, it's just it's a never-ending thing. Wish you the best success, and yeah, if, if y'all get anyone that reaches out or what, not it. I'd be happy to, you know, if we can't help them, at least try and point them in the right direction or something or we'll do. Uh, throw them into that new project that I'm kind of spinning up. So yeah. I, I definitely appreciate y'all's assistance. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, call 911. We've covered so many cases on Body of Crime where someone said, it looked strange, it felt off, but I didn't do anything. I failed to act. I say that because if your gut is telling you something is wrong, it's better for you to act and be wrong than for you to not act and be right. Absolutely. So we're going to provide some resources in our show notes for you guys. That's going to include the National Human Trafficking Hotline, which is a 24-7 hotline. Um, We'll provide the telephone number and also the webpage. And for human trafficking survivors, a multitude of resources spanning from essential banking services to legal assistance and counselings are available. We're committed to providing easy access to these invaluable resources. You can find a direct link to these comprehensive support services in the episode show notes or simply navigate to our website's resources tab for more information. That's at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com. Your journey to healing and recovery matters deeply to us and to everyone else.
For cases involving sex trafficking, the primary agency to contact is the FBI. To ensure a swift and accurate response, report any information to the FBI through the hotline at 1-800-CALL-FBI. In situations of imminent danger or urgent assistance, please dial 911 immediately. Should you wish to share relevant information with us, we encourage you to do so via private message. For further information and comprehensive details, please refer to the provided website. Your engagement is essential in the fight against human trafficking. Engaging in the battle against human trafficking encompasses diverse avenues, each making a meaningful impact. Whether you choose to volunteer your time, contribute resources, pursue a role within an organization like TXCTI, offer support, lend your voice as an advocate, or perhaps most crucially, adhere to the principle of, if you see something, say something, akin to the military's OPSEC term, your involvement matters. Together, through these collective efforts, we can dismantle the shadows cast by human trafficking and create a safer world for all. We have included some of these in the show notes, and they are also available on our website under the tab, Get Involved. We extend our heartfelt gratitude to our esteemed guests for dedicating valuable time to enlighten and empower our viewers and listeners in this ongoing battle against human trafficking. Your insights have undoubtedly contributed to our collective efforts, and we deeply appreciate your presence on our platform today. And that's a wrap on today's investigation, fellow detectives. If you found this episode both enlightening and captivating, then please subscribe to our podcast show and our Patreon. Leave a review and hit that like button. Share our podcast with others and engage with us on our website and social media platforms. You can find us on all major podcast platforms as well as our website at www.bodyofcrimepodcast.com where you can access all of our episodes and bonus content, including valuable resources. By expanding our community, we believe we can make a greater impact in our pursuit of truth and in shedding light on crucial cases. If there's a case that you'd like for us to cover or a personal story you'd like to share, please don't hesitate and contact us through our website. We always welcome your feedback and suggestions. Until next time, stay sharp, and thank you for tuning in to the Body of Crime Podcast. Podcast. Bye.